Now, I don't know about you guys. <clears throat> uh, did I get this right? There we go. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I'm just incredibly thankful week by week. My thankfulness increases for the partners that God has brought us with Builders for Christ. And uh, I'm personally excited to get out there this summer and do the work that God's calling us to do and be part of this whole project. Uh, but I do know this. If you're new with us today, um, you might kind of see this video and hear us talk about Builders for Christ and you might have no idea what's going on. So let me just say this, if you're new with us this morning, um, thank you so much for being here. It is a, a blessing and a privilege. Um, it's really an honor to have guests with us every single Sunday, week in and week out. Um, but second, it will be helpful for you to know if you're new with us that we are about to launch into a very significant building expansion project. Later this uh, spring and summer, we're going to build about an 18,000 square foot expansion right out this direction. And um, this is all part of our Make Him Known vision that Dave referenced earlier, where we want to be a church that makes Christ known here, near, and everywhere, specifically we want to build this building so that people who are near to this area but not yet connected to a church, that we have room for them, that they can come and hear the gospel and become part of the family of God. You can read, if you're new um, with us, you can read more about our Make Him Known vision in this booklet right here. They are available in the lobby, uh, whether you're watching here in Maine or uh, over at East. In our lobby, we have these booklets available, and if you're new with us, we'd love for you to take one of these home and read about the vision that God has uh, called us to do. So, as part of that building expansion, again, if you're new with us, we are partnering with this organization called Builders for Christ. And each year they come to churches like ours and they help churches like ours build their building project. They provide all the labor for free, which is a huge uh, cost savings and value to us. And so now it's our turn as a church to figure out like, how are we going to be involved in this project as well? What are we going to do? Um, so last Sunday I announced um, that we are starting what's called the Summer Serve Project. And um, we've built a webpage that really helps the church body, uh, figure out like, hey, how can we be involved? Many of you have been asking, all right, we know they're coming. We know that they need us involved. So how do we do that? So we put this webpage together to show you the roles that you can play. I do want to just take a minute before we get into today's sermon and talk about this um, just briefly uh, so that you know how you can be involved. So the first thing you need to do is go to our website, ubcbeavercreek.com slash make him known. And there you can see a tab that is highlighted on your screen, which says building project. And then underneath it, there's another tab that says UBC volunteer resources. And what we've done is we've taken the roles that we can play and we've put them into two main categories. Um, there are support volunteer roles and then there are construction volunteer roles. So when it comes to support volunteers, um, we've even broken that down into a few subcategories. So it's basically based off of the amount of time that you're available each week. So if you're available multiple days a week for certain weeks of the year, there are about five different roles you could play. If you're only available one day a week for certain weeks through the year, then there are roles that you could play. If you want to donate an item and just kind of make a one-time participation, there are certain items that we need the church to, to donate. So that's kind of an overview of the support roles. Um, and then there's the construction volunteer role. And uh, this, there's some in, important info that you guys need to know if you're thinking about doing construction. Um, first of all, you need to be available Monday through Friday. 
Um, you know, that's, uh, especially on Monday, because that's where the training happens, where you learn how to do the job that you're going to do. You do have to be 18 years old to be out working on the slab. Um, but here's the thing, you don't have to have any construction experience. Um, you know, like we've heard before, male, female, young and old, no matter what your vocation is, you don't have to be in a, a construction guy or a big husky dude to come out and work. You just come on out. Uh, and we'll train you. And um, as Scott said in the video, anyone can do it. We're going to train you. So that's kind of an overview of the construction role. So as you start to pray about this and you're thinking like, okay, Lord's calling me to, lead, to serve in a volunteer role. Or the Lord's calling me to serve in a construction role. Or maybe the Lord's going to call you to serve in both roles. Um, then you're going to need to consider your availability uh, on the calendar. And so what we've done is we put a construction schedule out on that webpage that shows you a 15-week calendar, and really, you just need to think about what weeks you can do what role. So simply summarized all this, here's what we're asking UBC to do this week. Simply think about this. What roles can I play and on what weeks? What roles and what weeks? And so just be thinking about that. Um, we're going to continue to talk about this for the next couple weeks, but then on March 6th, we're going to have another Commitment Sunday here in our services, okay? March 6th, we're going to have another Commitment Sunday. For those of you who are here in person on March 6th, we're all going to have the opportunity to turn in a card, a physical card, um, that just says, here's my commitment to this project. For those of you uh, who may be joining online that day, um, we're going to have an electronic card that you can fill out. Um, and so we all kind of pitch in and participate. So for me, uh, I'm, I'm just more and more excited about this. I'm not a construction guy, but I'm going to sign up for construction in May and hopefully be a part of it later on in the summer as well. And so we need 100% of us, like we've said all along, doing 100% of what God calls us to do. And if we all open up our hearts and do that, I believe this project is going to be a massive success, okay? So just open up your heart and do what calls, God calls you to do. Now, all that being said, um, let's jump into our sermon for today. Let's look at the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. So this is week 5 in uh, what's likely going to be about a two-year study for us through the book of Acts. Um, we have... Uh, covered some really good ground in this study already. It's been exciting for us. So let me just kind of summarize where we've been so far. Uh, what's happened so far is that the Lord Jesus has died, been resurrected from death, and he has uh, ascended to heaven. Um, but before he ascended to heaven, he ministered to his disciples and he gave them some specific instructions. Part of what he told them was to go in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And when the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit would fill his disciples with power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. All right, and so the disciples, what did they do? After Jesus ascended to heaven, they actually obeyed Jesus. They went back into Jerusalem and they waited. While they were there, the time came for the season of Pentecost, which is one of the Jewish festivals, right, where Jews from all around the surrounding regions, they travel into Jerusalem for this festival. And at Pentecost, these, uh, you know, the disciples were praying. And on that day, the Holy Spirit came. And supernatural things happened to the disciples that day. Uh, they heard something supernatural. They heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind, 
when the Holy Spirit came. Um, they saw something supernatural. They saw what appeared to be tongues of flaming fire. Um, they, they spoke something supernatural. Um, where they spoke in languages that they had never spoken before, but people who spoke those languages from the other regions who had come to town, everyone could hear in their own language. And so when the disciples were speaking this way, they were powerfully and boldly proclaiming the mighty works of God, and the disciples were doing ministry in that moment in the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the disciples who was boldly preaching, this is what we focused on last week, was a man named Peter. Many of us who have read the scriptures are very familiar with Peter. But we looked last week at Peter, the, the first part of Peter's sermon to the crowds that day. This is the first sermon that was ever preached in the early church, right? And in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 21, we covered last week, Peter is explaining the events that were happening at Pentecost, these supernatural events. And he's saying, this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the words of the prophet Joel. Um, Joel had, had talked about you know, what would happen in the last days. Um, remember these, these prophetic words of Joel written hundreds of years before the time of Christ. Joel said, in the, in the last days, certain things are gonna happen. Remember, the last days are the time that is, is existing between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And Joel said that in those last days, God would pour out his spirit on all men, that the old men and the young men would dream dreams and have visions, and that the sons and daughters and male servants and female servants, that they would prophesy. So these amazing things would happen, which by the way, some of you guys have emailed or called me this week and said, hey, what's up with all these uh, dreams and visions and signs and wonders? When are we going to talk about that? And I just want to give everybody a heads up. When we get into the month of April, right before Easter, we're going to commit a whole sermon to understanding how should we think about dreams, visions, signs and wonders, and that type of thing in our day and age today. So that's coming. I want to let you know that that's coming. Um, but I will say this too. If you have questions about it now, don't hesitate to reach out, okay? It's a joy for me to talk about this with the church body and uh, answer the questions that you have. So dreams, visions, signs, wonders, prophecies, like that's all predicted about the last days. But what was going on on the day of Pentecost? What was going on? The, the disciples, they were being filled with the Holy Spirit. They were seeing visions like the tongues of fire. They were prophesying boldly, speaking to the crowds about the mighty works of God. In other words, Joel's prophecy about the last days was starting to be fulfilled, right? That's where we left off last Sunday um, at verse 21. Now today, we're going to pick up in verse 22. We're going to work our way down through verse 41, Lord willing. And uh, what we're going to see is that Peter, in the rest of this message, he gives three proofs, three arguments about why the crowds should actually believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And we're going to make some Teaching points along the way, we're going to close with some application for us, but I hope you leave here today really believing the gospel that Peter preaches, and I hope that we leave here today as a church desiring that more and more people would come to believe the gospel and be saved. So let's pick up in verse 22. Peter continues preaching in verse 22, and he says these words. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. So just for a second... Remember the setting, okay? Peter is preaching to the men of Israel. He's, he's preaching to the Jewish crowds. They were waiting for their Messiah. They had been waiting for a long time. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man 
attested to you or, or proven to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So Peter points out, right, that these people in these crowds, they knew this man, Jesus of Nazareth. They knew where Nazareth was. They probably knew his mom and his dad, the carpenter. You know, they, they knew his siblings. They not only knew this man, Jesus, but they knew that some special things had happened in his life. They knew that he had performed signs and wonders. And, and Peter says, he did these things in your midst. All right, so some of the people who were there that day, what had they done? They had seen Jesus heal the sick. They had seen Jesus heal the leper. They had seen Jesus heal the blind man. They had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead or multiply bread and fish or cast out demons. And so Peter is saying to this unbelieving crowd, he's saying, listen, guys, you can't deny that you saw Jesus do these things. You might not believe that he's the Messiah, but you can't deny what you saw. Now, why would Peter be pointing this out? He's pointing this out because he and the disciples had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They had come to believe that he was the Christ. And so now Peter is, is in the rest of this message, he's gonna be making an argument saying, hey, here are some reasons why you, crowds, why you should also recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And the first proof that he mentions is the signs and wonders and miracles that Jesus had performed in their midst, right? They saw them. So Peter goes on to say this about Jesus, verse 23. Um, verse 23, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So imagine that. Peter's like sitting in front of this great crowd of people, at least 3,000 or more, because we see at least 3,000 of them are saved later that day. He, he looks at this big crowd and he says, you killed him. You crucified him, right? Talk about uh, non-politically correct preaching. You know what I mean? Like he's not afraid to offend some people here. And I just want to take a moment to say this. I think this is important because if people don't understand that they are sinners, they will never see the need for a savior, right? If, if people don't understand that they've offended God, why would they ever think that they need forgiveness from God? If people don't come to understand that they are unrighteous, why would they ever sense their need for repentance, right? Truth from God must be spoken in love, even if it's offensive to crowds for a moment. So Peter preaches boldly. He says the straightforward things. And I love what he says right here. He, he not only says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of these lawless men, Roman men, but he also says, Jesus was delivered up according to the what? Definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I want you to pick up on what Peter is tying together in one, in one sentence. You know what Peter's bringing together? God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. One sentence. In our culture, we tend to wonder like, how can God's sovereignty and man's responsibility go together? How does that work? Peter's saying in one sense, they go together right? Yes, Jesus died for sins, he, but, he, but he died for sins, our sins. He died for them according to God's plan. 
So I don't want anybody in this room to be confused. When we look at the death of Christ on the cross, we need to understand this. Jesus' death was not God's plan B. Uh, Jesus' death was not God's reaction because he didn't see Adam and Eve sinning in the garden and he just had to figure out a contingency plan afterwards. It wasn't an afterthought, right? God intended to save sinners through the death of Jesus from the beginning. For his glory and for his purposes, it was part of his plan. So Peter says, you killed Jesus and it all happened according to God's plan. Then he says this, But God raised him up, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter continues, right? He's he's calling the Jews to believe these proofs about the Messiah. He says, first, believe that that he was the Messiah sent from God because you saw the miracles. He did them in your midst. Now he's saying, believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, because why? Because God raised him from the dead, right? So Peter starts to emphasize the resurrection of Christ. And this is important because as we go through the book of Acts, you're gonna see that when people preach the gospel in the book of Acts, they emphasize the resurrection a ton, right? We tend to emphasize the cross and rightly so, but also we're gonna see the apostles emphasize the resurrection. We need to emphasize the resurrection in our gospel presentation as well. We'll get to that as we go on through the book of Acts. But here Peter says, God raised him from the dead. It was not possible for him, Jesus, to be held by it, death. Why does Peter say it wasn't possible? Why would Peter say it that way? It wasn't possible for death to hold him. We're gonna see this in the next few verses, verse 25 and following. Verse 25, Peter says, here's why it's not possible. For David says concerning him, so part of why it's not possible has to do with things that David said. Remember David, king of the Jews, um, king of Israel in, um, you know, hundreds of years before the time of Christ. Peter is about to quote something from David in the Old Testament scriptures. These Jewish crowds held David in high regard. Peter is now gonna quote words of David from Psalm chapter 16, verse one, or excuse me, verse uh, eight through 11, which says this. I saw the Lord, right? These are David's words. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. That's the Greek word, by the way, for the grave or for the place of the dead. You will not let your holy one see corruption, for you have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. So here's David speaking, Peter's quoting him, and David is speaking about God's faithfulness to not allow him to see the place of the dead. He won't let the holy one see his body be corrupted in the grave. But isn't it interesting, if you read the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter, uh, chapter 2, or excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 2, it actually says that David died and was buried with his fathers in Jerusalem. So wait a minute, his body is in the grave. If you remember right now in our story of Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter is speaking in Jerusalem, which means they could have just literally took a walk and walked to the grave of David. Which is why Peter says what he says in verse 29. 
Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us right here in Jerusalem to this day. So as, as godly of a man as David was, his body was still in the grave. So the Holy One in Psalm 16, that God would not abandon to the grave, it can't be referring only to David. Who, who might it be referring to? I don't know. I guess we're going to find out. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, right? So Peter says David was a prophet. I don't, I don't know if you've ever really thought of David as a prophet. But 2 Samuel 23 says that when David spoke, he understood that the Holy Spirit was speaking through him at times. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, the Christ, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So catch what Peter's saying here. He's saying several things. He's saying David knew that the Christ would be one of his descendants that would sit on the throne. David knew that the Christ wouldn't uh, be abandoned to the grave or his body wouldn't see corruption. And so when David spoke in Psalm 16, Peter's saying David spoke prophetically about Jesus. Therefore, it wasn't possible for Jesus to be held by death. Why? Because God planned to raise Jesus all along. And if God made a prophetic promise in the past, you can take it to the bank. God's gonna keep his promise, right? That's why it's not possible for death to hold him. That's Peter's second proof that Jesus was the Messiah, that God raised Jesus from the dead just as David had prophesied long ago. Now, Peter moves into a third proof that Jesus was the Messiah. Look at verse 33. Verse 33 says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. So he's speaking about Jesus now being exalted at the right hand of God. Remember, Peter and the other disciples, they saw him ascend into heaven where he's now seated at the Father's right hand. Being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, talking about the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Right, so that's what was going on at the day of Pentecost. Jesus had been exalted to heaven. Now he's pouring out his Holy Spirit and all the people that were hearing this they're, you know, and, and seeing these things, they're seeing the exalted Christ do the mighty work that was being done there at Pentecost. It says in verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So, Again, Peter is quoting David from the Psalms, this time from Psalm 110, verse one. And Peter is saying, even David back then said things like, the Lord, meaning God the Father, said to my Lord. So David recognized that he himself had a Lord who was not necessarily God the Father. Right? Even King David understood that the Messiah would be his Lord. The exalted Messiah would even be greater than David. So Peter starts making these things and now he drives home his point. Verse 36, this is where it starts to get straight to the point. Peter says, 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. Who? This Jesus that you have crucified. God made Jesus both Lord and Christ. The word Christ in the original Greek language is the word Christos. And it really means anointed one sent from God. So when you think about the life of Jesus, what do we remember happened to Jesus at Jesus' baptism? At his baptism, a voice came from heaven and God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon Jesus. And at that time, he was recognized as God's anointed one, the Christ. But Peter is saying this. Peter is saying, Jesus isn't just the Christ. He is also Lord. In Greek, it's the word kurios. Kurios means the one with all dominion and power, master. And, and Peter is saying that God proved the lordship of Christ through his signs and wonders and miracles that everybody saw. He proved the lordship of Christ with his resurrection that was prophesied by David where he overcame death. And he proved the lordship of Christ through his exaltation, his ascension to heaven where he can now pour out the Holy Spirit upon all who would believe. So Peter's point to the Jews is now very clear. God has made Jesus both Lord over all and the Christ that all you Jews, the Messiah, you've been waiting for for so long. Now imagine being a Jewish listener at this point in time in the crowd. If you heard this and you started to connect the dots, you're listening, you're reflecting, you're wondering, how could I have missed this? You're wondering to yourself, what have we done? What have we done? Because we not only rejected Jesus, we called for the, the killing of the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And not only that, we've actually rejected God who has proven Jesus to be the Messiah right in front of our faces. What do we do? What do we do? They understood they were responsible and culpable and guilty. And verse 37 says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Peter had just preached a sermon. And isn't it true that sometimes the preaching of the gospel, sometimes the preaching of the truth comforts your soul, other times it cuts your heart open. So, preaching isn't just about getting our heads filled. Preaching is about God getting our hearts open. And sometimes God has to cut us open in order to clean us out and heal us up. And that's exactly what happens to this crowd. And so they, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They're guilty, they're ashamed, they're putting things together. They realized what they've done. And Peter said to them, here's what you do, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they hear the truth. They ask what to do. 
Peter tells them the truth. He tells them what to do. You need to repent. See, coming to salvation starts with repentance. Repentance is having a, 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 such a serious change of mind that it changes your behavior. So it's a serious change of beliefs that it changes your behavior. You once believed one way about God and your sin, but your eyes get opened and your mind changes. And your mind changes so strongly that you change the way you live. It leads you to turn away from your sinful behaviors and now it causes you to turn to God and pursue righteous behaviors. So Peter says, you want to know what to do? You need to start with repentance and then be baptized. Peter tells them, be baptized. You see how, you see how baptism is so closely connected to repentance? It's, it's this initial behavior that changes because your mind has, changes, has changed. Bapti baptism is the initial outward action of the initial inward heart change, baptism. Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Now, over the years, I wanna, I wanna address this because over the years, many people have come to me quoting this verse, asking questions like, hey, is this verse saying that my sins are only gonna be forgiven if I get baptized? Is it, is it baptism that forgives my sins? Kinda, kinda seems like that when you read this at first, doesn't it? Some churches do teach this way. This is called the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. That you are saved, forgiven of your sin, and have new life in Christ only when you've been baptized. So this, people who teach baptismal regeneration, they'll quote this verse and they'll say, you know, this verse says, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so to them, the word for means to receive. Be baptized to receive the forgiveness of your sins. But here's what you need to know. And this is why it's important to study the Bible well. Here's why we reject this baptismal regeneration idea. It's because in the Greek language, the word for is the word ice. E-I-S. It means, uh, it means um, because of, not to receive. So imagine, it's Olympics time, right? Imagine that, you know, you're performing at the Olympics. You got first place in some event. I come to you on the podium. I hang a gold medal around your neck and I say to you, be awarded for your performance. I would not mean be awarded to receive your performance, right? That wouldn't make any sense. I would mean be awarded because of your performance, Right? For means because of. So when Peter says be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, he means be baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins. He's not teaching baptismal regeneration. We all need to be 100% confident about that. And he says in verse 38 that when they've repented and had their sins forgiven, they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39. For the promise the Holy Spirit, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Hey, that's us, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I'm glad I've received the Holy Spirit. Amen? All right? This promise is for us even. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Praise God he's called me to himself. Praise God he's called, you know, us to himself. If you're a believer today. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked or, or perverse generation. And so those who received his word and were baptized, um, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000, you guys, can you imagine that? Ser I mean, seriously, there were like 120 apostles doing ministry. That would be like the amount of people here at UBC Maine right, at right now going out doing ministry. Something happens to the crowd and suddenly, boom, 3,000 people saved. Amazing. Let me share with you something about this great harvest of souls that was saved on the day of Pentecost. Remember, like we talked about last Sunday, the Pentecost was, um, was part of the, the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks was one of those pilgrimage festivals where Jews from all around traveled in to the temple in Jerusalem because when they came in, they were to make first fruits offerings of different types of harvests. And so the first fruits that were offered on the Feast of Weeks, it was actually from their harvest of wheat. Right? So people are coming in because they want to you know, make their, their offering from their harvest. I want you to kind of catch the, the picture of what's going on here. People were at Pentecost due to a harvest of wheat. God wanted to make Pentecost a harvest of souls. They came to, to give the first fruits of their crops. God wanted to have them be the first fruits of the church. You get what Pentecost was for? They came for one reason. God had them there for a different reason. And listen, you may have come to church today for one reason, but God might have you here for a totally different reason. You know? You may have come here today to check out this church. Maybe God has you here to check out your heart. You may have come here today to appease your spouse or a friend or a neighbor. God may have you here to make you his own friend, to make you part of his own bride, the church. You may have come here thinking, oh, I just need to do something for God. Maybe, maybe God has you here because he wants you to hear what he's already done for you through Jesus. You may have come to church today for one reason, but God may have you here for a different reason. So let me wrap up my time here this morning with three takeaways for all of us. Here's our three takeaways. What does this passage mean? How does it apply to us today? Here's the first one. If you've never done so, repent and believe in Jesus as Lord and Christ. If you've never done so, believe in Jesus as Lord and Christ. In order to be saved, you, you must first repent. You must have a time where you've recognized you are not a good person. You are a sinner and your life has, has been a, a litany of offenses against a holy and righteous God. And therefore, in order to be with God after this life is over, your sins must be forgiven and erased and not held against you. So you need to turn from those and repent and have your sins forgiven. And God has made a way for your sins to be forgiven through the death of his son, Jesus, which we talked about earlier, right? That Jesus died according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Listen to me, everybody in this room. What great evidence of God's love for you. What great, he loved you before there was a you. He, lo he loved you full well knowing every moment you would ever rebel and sin and offend him. 
His plan all along from the beginning was to make a way for your forgiveness. Would you love somebody that way, knowing that they would betray you and turn against you? Would you, would you give your life for them, knowing that they would live? Most of us probably would not. So our God is what? He is, our sovereign God is absolutely in control and he is absolutely full of love for sinners like you and like me. What a great savior. You need to remember today, he is, he is the Christ. He's the savior, the anointed one sent from God to be your savior, the savior of sinners. And I wanna say he'll save you no matter who you are. No matter what is in your past, he will save you. But you also need to recognize this. He's not just Christ. He is also Lord. He is the exalted one, sovereign over the, all that there is. So whether you bow the knee of your heart to him today or not, you need to know this. You will one day bow your knee to him and recognize him as Lord. You can do it today for salvation or you can do it at judgment for damnation. But one way or another, we will all recognize Jesus as Lord. He is Lord in Christ. Believe in him today. Second takeaway for us. If you've never done so after believing, then you need to be baptized. If you've never done so today after believing, then you need to be baptized. You know, some of you, today, maybe your eyes might be open and you would say, you know what, today is my day of repentance. Today is my day of belief. Well, you need to know this. Your next step is to be baptized. And uh, you need to go public with your faith and say, I'm with Jesus, Jesus is with me, and I'm unashamed to let the world know. Some of you might have questions about baptism and, and you wanna know a little bit more about it before you take that, that step of baptism and that's totally understandable. And I want you to know this, this is part of why once a quarter throughout the year we offer something very simply titled our baptism class. A one hour class that we would love to talk with you. Some of the families in this room right now have been to the baptism class with their children, with their fiancés, with people that they love and know. Um, our next baptism class is coming up on March 6th. We would love to have you sign up online. Come to that class, get your questions answered. And if you leave that class and you're like, all right, I'm ready to be baptized. Our next baptism Sunday is gonna be on Easter Sunday. What a great day to celebrate new life in Christ, right? Amazing. Some of you have believed before, maybe even long ago, but you still haven't been baptized. You haven't been baptized after believing. And <clears throat> last night I was just praying for you. Like, why not? I just, I really want you to answer that question in your heart. Like, what is holding you back? Maybe it's fear. You're afraid of being in front of people. Afraid of what other people might think. Maybe it's pride. You've been a Christian for a long time. You've been doing ministry. You might be a little embarrassed if people see that you just, wow, you've waited this long to be baptized. Maybe it's expectations, you're thinking to yourself, oh, I've just gotta be this good enough, godly enough person and then I'll be worthy of baptism. You know, here's what the Lord was showing me last night. You, you know what all those excuses have in common? You. You. Here's what I wanna say, guys. Baptism is not about you. Baptism is about God being magnified. Baptism is about the Jesus who saved you and him putting his grace on display through you. 
So I've been thinking about this this week a lot and just praying like, Lord, maybe you'll move somebody who's been waiting for a long time finally to be baptized. In fact, I think the only good reason that somebody might not be baptized is because they're not saved. (laughs) What other good reason is there? And maybe, honestly, maybe that's just what some of you are dealing with. Maybe you've held off on baptism because you're not sure if you're really saved. And if last night I was just praying for you too, like, Lord, maybe there's people in our church who just, they wrestle with whether or not they're born again. I believe that the Lord wants you to settle that in your heart once and for all. And if you want to talk about that, I would love to talk and pray with you about it. But if you've been giving some other excuse, I just encourage you to follow Jesus' example. Obey the scripture's clear commands. Jesus is Lord. He has made his will clear. So obey Jesus, Savior and Lord, and be baptized. Last takeaway. Would you join me in asking the Holy Spirit to bring a fresh harvest of souls through the ministry of our church? Would you join me in praying for that? Guys, think about the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people saved in one day. I mean, that's just amazing to me. Like, can you, can you imagine doing that many baptisms like in one day? That's a long baptism service. I know I joked about this last week a little bit, but I'm telling you, I, I really think that some of today's Christians... Maybe some of us who are here this morning in UBC, I think some of us would have really struggled on the day of Pentecost. And you know who would have been the strugglers? It would be the people who, man, they just really like a small church. The people who always assume big churches are bad churches. The people who grumble when the church grows because I don't know everybody and not everybody knows me anymore. And Guys, I guess I just want to say, at Pentecost, you know what happened? The church went from 120 to 3,000 in one day. That's a lot of rapid growth. That's a lot of new faces. But you know what else that was? That was a mighty move of God the Holy Spirit. So how do you deal with it when the church is growing and you feel a little bit uncomfortable? Here's how you deal with it. You remember that like baptism, salvation and the growth of the church Unchurched and dechurched people coming back to the Lord and joining us here. You got to remember, that's not about you either. What would you do if God brought 3,000 unchurched, dechurched people to UBC overnight? What would you do? I hope we would celebrate it as a mighty move of God. Whether, and honestly, whether it's 3,000 or three, you're right? Like, I want to pray for a fresh movement of salvation in our church. Right, so our lost kids, our lost family members, our, our co-workers, our neighbors, local college students in this area, people who gave up on church a long time ago, seekers and skeptics, guys, may they believe the message of the gospel of Jesus as Lord and Christ, and may the Spirit of God move to bring a fresh harvest of souls. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your word again, and as The crowd said to Peter, uh, what must we do? Thank you that your word cuts our hearts open sometimes. And Lord, I do pray that you would grow us as a church to move past a desire for information and to move to a readiness for transformation. 
Lord, would you cut our hearts open as believers that we would be open and receptive to whatever your Holy Spirit is speaking to us? And Lord, would you use the preaching of the word, whether it's from this pulpit or in the conversations in our workplace or our homes or through the witness of social media or some other means, would you, Lord, use the proclamation of the gospel among the people of UBC to reach those who are far from you. We ask that you would do it for your name's sake and for your glory. Use us to that end, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.